Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome to episode 47 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Patrick McEwen joining us. He's a graduate of Trinity College Dublin and the Buteyko Breathing Clinic of Russia. Patrick was a chronic asthmatic for most of his life, experiencing high perceived stress and poor sleep. In 1998, he addressed his breathing pattern disorders, leading to a dramatic improvement to his health. Since 2002, he has taught children and adults simple and effective ways to adopt functional breathing patterns. A TEDx speaker, Patrick's work has touched the lives of thousands and more worldwide. His work has been published by leading publishing houses, including HarperCollins in the UK, William Morrow's Press in the USA, Red Wheel Weiser in the US, and Sperling and Kupfer in Italy, as well as Kanki Publishing, Inc. in Japan. Journal publications include the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and Clinical Otolaryngology. Thank you, Patrick, so much for joining us today. I'm excited to have you here on the podcast. Thanks very much, Ali. My pleasure. So let's jump right on in, and I would love to know how you got into the Uteco breathing space. Well, it was primarily by accident. I was a child growing up with asthma, and if you have asthma, you don't just have asthma, and that inflammation is not just isolated to the lungs, but it also travels up to the nose. So I had a stuffy nose, and I had inflammation on my lungs, and then, of course, your sleep is impacted, and with that, then I had higher stress levels. So... For, for me as a kid going through school and going into high school and university, I had problems with concentration. I had problems with memory in terms of I didn't have the, the focus and the energy levels to be able to, you know, to really hone in on material. And I got my grades. My grades were fine, but it took a lot of work. So I was in the corporate world. Um, my background, my master's degree is in economics. And I read at the time, back in 1997-98, about a newspaper article. And it was about the work of a Russian doctor. And uh, he spoke about two things. He said, it's really vitally important for human beings to breathe in and out through their nose. And it's also vital that they have light breathing, that their breathing is silent during rest. And that kind of article, that struck me because I had neither of that. I was a person with a, with a stuffy nose. I was persistently mouth-breathing. Um, I could always hear my breathing and also I often felt that I wasn't getting enough air. So this is despite like the kind of the strange thing is that I had a nasal operation in 1994 and the surgeons fixed my nose and I'm not sure exactly what they did, but I think, I think I had turbinate reduction surgery and I had a correction of a deviated septum, even though my nose is still not fully functioning, but it's not too bad. Um, but the surgeons never told me to breathe through it afterwards. So even though my nose was fixed, I, I just continued with the habit of mouth breathing. And I think this is inevitable because if you breathe through an open mouth for 20 years, even when you fix the issue or the obstruction, you're not necessarily changing the behavior. Yeah. And so I was one of those youngsters that fell through the cracks. And this is, you know, 
going to, I was going to my medical doctors every three months or so looking for asthma medication. And I was never encouraged to breathe through my nose. So I read this article and uh, I did a nose unblocking clearing exercise, which I was able to find online. This is back in 1998. This is the infancy of the internet. And I was able to open up my nose. I started switching to nasal breathing. I was feeling very uncomfortable when I first switched to nose breathing because of course I developed the habit of breathing too much air, breathing fast and breathing upper chest. Mm. And at nighttime, I wore tape across my lips. I wore 3M Micropore tape, but I also wore Breathe Right strips. And on the second day after taping from the night before, I woke up and I felt more alert than I had in years. In actual fact, it was just, it was night and day. And also my asthma symptoms were reducing by about 50% in that first week. Wow. And that was after having asthma since I was about four years of age. So I stayed in the corporate world because that was my training. And then I felt after a couple of years, I felt I really need to, you know, get this information out in Ireland. So I contacted the Russian embassy and they were able to get me the contact details of the, the people in Moscow. So I ended up training there and uh, that's it, you know. So my actually fundamental change in my career, going from the corporate world, which was stressful anyway, to uh, teaching breathing, which absolutely I love doing. So that's, that's here where I am now at the moment. And that's amazing. I mean, I think we all have our story and oftentimes the reason why we fall into things that we're extremely passionate about is because we've had a personal experience ourselves. So yes. um, I don't think I knew that about you. And I think that's, that's really, it's amazing. And it goes to show why you're so passionate about it. Um, yeah. And you know, I think it's really important. I think also a lot of the dentists that I see who are very passionate about airway, they actually came across it because it was when they were working with their own children. Oh, yeah. And it's sometimes very interesting that we do, it's our own life experiences, which direct whatever, whichever route that we go. Yeah. Yeah. It was my tongue tie journey with my, my two kids and then myself. And that's what threw me down my rabbit hole of myofunctional yeah. therapy and tots and airway and all those fun things. So I completely agree with yeah, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now I know that you do a lot of work, as you, as you mentioned, one of the biggest things that stood out to me and a lot of what we teach um, on this podcast and just what I preach in general is that you can change structures, but if you don't change the underlying habits, like mm -hmm. the mouth breathing from a habitual standpoint and create those new patterns, we're not going to have success, right? So we're not going to maintain, you know, so if a child goes and gets their adenoids taken out or their tonsils taken out, but they continue to mouth breathe, you know, we're not going to get the same benefits if that we are not training them on how to nasal breathe. So let's, can we talk yes. about mouth breathing in children and kind of go down that rabbit hole? Um, because I know that you you can speak to both it being a habit or and or an obstruction. And yes, kind of yeah, from there. yeah. When kids come into us, and map breathing is very common. In the literature, the results are a little bit mixed. We're seeing figures from 25% of study children to as high as 50% of study children. Hmm. So children are coming into me, and I usually teach by small groups. So I have about six children come in, and each child is coming in with their parents. So it's like a classroom environment. And I talk about, I have my anatomical model and we talk about breathing through the nose and it helps you look intelligent, not to be having the mouth open with the tongue hanging out. It's helpful for sports, for beautiful faces, for sleep. And of course, for parents, the main motivator is often academics. Mm -hmm. And about 10 minutes into it then, I introduce taping for the kids. 
and I tape up all six children. Sometimes as well, I request the parents to tape up as well. Mm-hmm. So whatever we're doing with the kids, we're also teaching the parents. And the reason that I tape up the kids is because I want to see, can they establish nasal breathing for a period of time? Mm. I then start off with a very gentle exercise to get them used to holding their nose. So these kids are often three, four years of age, typically four years of age for a boy, maybe three years of age for a girl, and they can be upwards to about, say, 12 or 13 for the kids' course. So I start them off, they're taped up, and then I do small breath holds with them. And then I progress then into the longer breath holds to help open up the front of the nose. And I'm doing that because I want to establish where is the obstruction? Why is the child breathing through an open mouth? Is the child breathing through an open mouth because of habit? Well, if it's just because of habit, they can comfortably breathe through their nose when they're taped, even before I do the exercises. If it's obstruction of the nose, that it's the front of the nose, that it's rhinitis, which is affecting about 40% of American children, I do the nose unblocking exercise to decongest the nose. And then I see, can the child breathe comfortably through it? But after doing the nose unblocking exercise, if the child is still feeling very uncomfortable breathing through the nose, I have to suspect the issue then is enlarged adenoids. Now with that, I typically give the advice to the parents. I think it's very important to realize that enlarged adenoids themselves don't cause mouth breathing unless the airway is compromised. And here is why I say this. There's very little research on it. One paper was published in 2010. It was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. And the paper starts as follows. The efficacy of tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy in children is unknown. Now, this is a 2010 paper. And when I came across this, because this journal is is published by the American Thoracic Society, I was shocked. I was shocked on the basis that children are undergoing this operation for decades, even though the efficacy wasn't known. And when they looked, when the researchers looked at 587 children or 578 children, they found that only 27% of them had their obstructive sleep apnea cured, 27%. 73% of them continued to have residual obstructive sleep apnea post-tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. Now, granted, they did have a significant reduction in their AHI, but at the same time, of them continued to have residual obstructive sleep apnea. We have to ask the question, what is the real issue here? Is is it if a child, like not all children with enlarged adenoids have sleep problems. It's a combination of a narrowed airway and poor craniofacial development with enlarged adenoids that's causing the problem. But the gold standard of treatment is remove the adenoids and tonsils and do nothing about the airway. And we also know from Dr. Christian Gimeno's work that tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, that there's a 65% worsening chance of a worsening in the AHI index within three years, unless nasal breathing is restored. So my take now is, and I went down with my own child, I went down the tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy route. But if I was to do it again, what way would I embark on it? Number one, I would bring my child from six months, seven months, and very young, because I rec- we recognize the high upper palate with my own child, to an osteopath or to a professional 
who can gently guide the direction of the, the growth of the jaws just with simple pressure exerted by their thumbs. Then at a, a young age is to embark on functional orthodontics using maybe an alpha appliance, which she did use when she was four, and it worked tremendously well. By directing the development of the face that the child can then breathe through the nose, and by harnessing nasal nitric oxide, when the air is warmed and filtered, that the adenoids themselves should shrink. So as opposed to that the gold standard of treatment is remove the adenoids, remove the tonsils, do nothing about the airway, the child still has a compromised airway. So, and the other thing is, if you look at the paper, there's a dreadful paper by Dr. Christian Gimeno, and the topic is debt and maxillary complex in children. And he looked at seven young infants who died with sudden infant death syndrome. And these infants died abruptly in their sleep. And when researchers looked at their airway, all of them had a high, upper, the high narrow um, palate. So their airway was compromised. And the only thing that preceded death with these young, young infants were a runny nose. Now, it was the runny nose that tipped them over the edge, but it was their airway that was compromised. The risk factors for any parent are, and this is where dentists have a tremendous role to play. I'm currently writing a new book and I'm including all of this information. And the reason being is because the general public, number one, they're not aware of it. And number two, I really feel that the medical system has let down children. They let down me as a child growing up. They let down my daughter. They let down millions of kids. And the dental profession has been very slow as well because this information has been debated since 1909. If you look at the journal Dental Cosmos that was around at the time, 1909, you will see the description of what happens, what happens when children persistently breathe through an open mouth. The child is inattentive in school. Their academic ability is reduced. They are sleepy. They're, their face is dull and expressionless. You know, and the future of kids, and we know it as healthcare professionals, but it's just unfortunate that it's pockets. So with children coming back to it, so we have the kids anyway in the class, we have them taped up, and then I have them do the nose and blocking exercises, and then I have them running with their mouth closed. I have them running for a minute, walking for a minute, running for a minute, walking for a minute. And then I have them do breath hold exercises to help restore normal breathing patterns. Because what is causing mouth breathing in the first instance? Well, number one, we generally know that if a child experiences air hunger, or an adult for, any, for that matter, but if a child experiences air hunger when they try to breathe through their nose, they're not going to continue nasal breathing. What causes air hunger? Air hunger can be caused by obstruction of the nose, whether it's the back of the nose, which is enlarged adenoid with a compromised airway, or the front of the nose, which is rhinitis. But also what causes air hunger is a small nose. So you can have a child with an anatomically perfectly functioning adequate nose, but the nose is small. And in one paper, 97% of individuals with a small nose were classified as mouth breeders, whereas 12% of individuals with a normal size nose were classified as mouth breeders. So a small nose is enough to do that. And another aspect that we have to take into consideration is breathing patterns. And from time to time, we do see children, if they are predisposed to asthma especially, or if they are predisposed to anxiety. 
they are the groups that have most commonly breathing pattern disorders. These kids are breathing fast and they are breathing upper chest. That can also create air hunger. So you can have a child with a perfectly functioning nose, but if they have a breathing pattern disorder, that too will cause air hunger because the child is breathing too hard through their nose and not just with children, also with adults. There was a paper written by Dr. James Bartley. It was published in 2005, I think in the American Journal of Rhinology, but I'm not exactly sure the name of the paper. He investigated 14 patients. They were after having two and a half procedures on average to address nasal um, obstruction. So they had two and a half procedures, but they were still going back to their ear, nose and throat doctor, and they were complaining of nasal obstruction. The doctor was examining their airway. Their airway was adequate. Dr. James Bartley concluded these patients all had chronic hyperventilation syndrome. Their average respiratory rate was more than 18 breaths per minute. They were breathing fast and hard using their upper chest. So it's not just about the airway. We also have to look at flow. And we have to look at flow in terms of sleep and because it's really, really important. The whole emphasis in sleep medicine is generally look at the airway, what's the size of the pipe. But if an engineer was looking at the size of any pipe, no engineer is going to look at the size of a pipe without consideration of flow. Because flow and airway diameter go together. And oftentimes with adults, I'll say to the adults, you know, make the sound of a snore and they do this. Okay, well, we tape you up, you're going to mouth, your mouth snoring will stop, but then nose snoring. So what do you do to make that sound? Well, number one is they speed up, the, they speed up their breathing. And number two is they generally will constrict their airway. So now I asked them then, I want you to breathe through your nose, but I want you to breathe really slowly through your nose. So you're taking a very soft and slow breath in and a relaxed and slow, gentle breath out. And now as you breathe slowly, I want you to snore. Can you snore when your breathing is slow? And you will find that it's much more difficult. So again, what has been overlooked in sleep management and in sleep disorder breathing is the breathing component of it. Now there's a number of different perspectives, both for children and for adults. We have to look at breathing from three three dimensions. The first dimension that we look at is the biochemistry as a result of breathing. If we are breathing too hard and too fast, it can cause a lowering of carbon dioxide in the blood and carbon dioxide is the stimulus to breathe. Now, if an individual has an increased sensitivity to this gas, their breathing is generally harder. And this does play a role in obstructive sleep apnea. In the last few years, phenotypes have been introduced one is anatomical, which is, of course, PCRIT, which is the suction pressure at which the airway collapses. But another one is called loop gain. And loop gain is the stability of breathing during sleep. How do you measure loop gain? You measure it in an adult by measuring their breath hold time. We have been using breath hold time to assess breathing for 20 years. We know that somebody with a breathing pattern disorder or with asthma or different groups of anxiety, but if they have labored breathing, their breath hold time is reduced. So to recognize loop gain, you would 
in Messino's paper. He, he, he investigates loop gain by measuring maximum breath hold time. And he also has the individual stop breathing during wakefulness for 20 seconds. And he monitors how do they breathe when they resume breathing. Do they breathe with exaggerated ventilation? So individuals with high loop gain, which is 30% of the obstructive sleep apnea population, they have an exaggerated ventilatory response to carbon dioxide. So how does this manifest in sleep? Well, the individual stops breathing. As they stop breathing, their blood oxygen saturation is dropping. And at the same time, carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood. But if they are overly sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide, when they resume breathing, they resume breathing with exaggerated ventilation. This causes their carbon dioxide levels to go from too high to too low. When carbon dioxide levels drops too much, and this can also happen with mouth breathing, the brain doesn't send a signal to breathe. This can initiate a central apnea, but also when the respiratory output from the brain is reduced, the messaging from the brain to the upper airway dilator muscles is reduced, and this can manifest as an obstructive event. 30% of people with obstructive sleep apnea, adults, have high loop gain. But I also believe that this phenotype impacts children because children too can have labored breathing, especially those kids with a tendency towards asthma and those kids with a tendency towards anxiety. So how do you address loop gain? There's no other way to address it other than change their breathing patterns. You measure it, you assess it by using breath hold time. We use the control pause in Buteco. We use the same measurement as the bolt score in, in the oxygen advantage. So I would say to anybody with, working with people with sleep, sit your adult patient down, look at their breathing. Are they breathing from a mouth or are they breathing through the nose or both? Are they breathing high using their upper chest or are they breathing low using the diaphragm, using the lower regions of their lungs? What speed are they breathing at? Are they breathing fast and hard? What is the amplitude of the breath? How regular are they breathing? Do you see regular breathing interspersed with sighs? And also a very good indicator is after the person breathes out, is there a natural pause before they need to breathe in again? Because people who are breathing harder and faster during rest are also going to breathe harder and faster during sleep. And if we think of the turbulence in the airway, whether it's snoring or hypopnea or upper airway resistance syndrome or an apnea, we have to consider the flow because the negative pressure created during inspiration is going to contribute to, to resistance to breathing and also contribute to collapse of the airways. And one old definition of obstructive sleep apnea was when the negative pressure created during inspiration exceeds the dilating force of the upper airway dilator muscles. So in other words, we need those muscles in the throat to do their job to maintain an open airway during sleep. But, you know, when we look at, we have to also look at in terms of adults um, and coming back to high loop gain, what Messino's paper stated was 30% of the sleep apnea population have high loop gain. It just would, you can assess it very simply using breath hold time, but also monitoring the person's breathing and also to reduce high loop gain, change their breathing patterns. And you can change their breathing patterns 
by looking at the biochemical aspect of breathing, getting them to really slow down their breath in order to reduce the air intake, to increase carbon dioxide in the blood, to reduce the body's sensitivity to the buildup of carbon dioxide. But another way to reduce high loop gain is cadence breathing to six breaths per minute. And cadence breathing to six breaths per minute or 5.5 breaths per minute is an excellent way to influence the autonomic nervous system. But basically there's pressure receptors inside our major blood vessels in the aorta and the carotid arteries. And these pressure receptors monitor our blood pressure. But if we change our breathing to 5.5 and six breaths per minute, it modifies the baroreceptors, these pressure receptors, and this in turn modifies the chemoreflex or the body's chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup. So that's loop gain. Now I can do a quick summary on the other two phenotypes because I think they will apply. Um, and the one that has the greatest risk of mortality is surprisingly, it's not the individual who stops breathing for a minute and a half and his blood oxygen saturation drops down to 60%. One paper that was published investigating the, the risk factor in terms of the phenotypes of sleep apnea, it was arousal threshold. And arousal threshold is the propensity to wake from sleep. If you have somebody who is a light sleeper, and by the way, 67% of people with obstructive sleep apnea also have insomnia. So that's what research is showing. Now, here's where the difficult thing is. You have a patient coming into you. And that patient is complaining of fatigue and irritability and cognitive difficulty. But are they having those symptoms because of obstructive sleep apnea or do they have those symptoms because of insomnia? Hmm. There's no difference. Those symptoms are the same. The symptoms are the same, whether it's insomnia or the symptoms for obstructive sleep apnea. So there is a crossover there. Light sleep is a problem in obstructive sleep apnea. And especially if the individual is a light sleeper, that they can, get, they can experience sleep fragmentation due to the slightest restriction to their breathing. So arousal threshold is the propensity to wake from sleep. And quite simply, you could say in simple terms is, how easy is it for the person to, to get sleep, to experience sleep fragmentation from the slightest, slightest of events? This was the greatest cause of mortality or the greatest you know, indicator of risk of mortality. So these people generally score pretty low on the AHI. And also they don't desaturate very because they're waking up. They have sleep fragmentation before they experience a significant apnea. But that constant sleep fragmentation is, is what's really having a, a dramatic negative effect on their health. Now, doctors no, normally will treat, low, will, will treat arousal threshold with sedatives. But you can also improve your ability to have a deep sleep by changing your breathing. And nasal breathing is huge in this regard. Yeah. If you are a mouth breather and you're waking up with a dry mouth, you're more likely to wake up tired and feeling unrefreshed. So for insomnia, we have been working with people with insomnia for many years. And we work at it from two perspectives. One, I think it's very important to help them activate their parasympathetic tone, the parasympathetic response. If individuals are constantly switched on, that their mind is very agitated, that they are worrying, that they are stressed, that they are overly thinking, it's very difficult to fall asleep when the mind is in such a state of agitation. 
I think most of us we'll have a bad day every now and again. You know, that's normal. You go to sleep at that night, you're not going to have a good night's sleep. But for most of us, that's a one-off occasion. But for some people, that's continuing all the time. So these, in, these people then, they're twisting and turning. They're sleeping lightly. And one of the best things that I was, did when I in, came across this was taping my mouth 20 years ago. And I was waking up feeling refreshed. And when you breathe through your nose, during wakefulness, your nose imposes a resistance to your breathing that's two to three times that of the mouth. But during sleep, your mouth imposes a resistance to your breathing that's 2.5 times that of the nose. So the architecture of the airway dramatically reduces when you switch to mouth breathing, possibly because that the jaws are going to fall back in against the throat or the tongue is falling into the airway, the soft palate is falling into the airway, the epiglottis is falling into the airway. But there also seems to be some, in some way, that mouth breathing is causing fast breathing, and fast breathing is more likely to wake us from sleep. Now, very little research on this. One paper, if you Google slow breathing, Stanford Medical School, March 2017. In Stanford Medical School, Researchers identified a new structure in the brain, in the locus corollis, and they said that this structure is spying on your breathing, that if you breathe fast, you're more likely to be aroused from sleep. So they said that this structure is spying on your breathing, and if you breathe fast, your mind is more agitated, but also if you breathe fast, you're more likely to be aroused from sleep. But mouth breathing causes fast breathing, and mouth breathing also causes upper chest breathing. So we have an individual, they go to sleep and they have a breathing pattern disorder. They're breathing through an open mouth and this causes fast breathing and it also causes upper chest breathing. Now, both fast and upper chest breathing is fight or flight. And fight or flight is going to keep that person in a state of agitation that they're going to have light sleep and not have a deep sleep. Okay, so I'll continue talking for a little bit more. I mean, this is great. I... Um as you're sitting here talking about this, I'm thinking of all of my patients, <laughs> family members, patients, my children, you know, my daughter is in an elf and she's four. And so, you know, my goal for her was let's see if we can avoid taking out those enlarged tonsils or see if we can, you know, yes. shrink yeah. those, uh, those inflamed tissues through other means other than surgery. Um, yes. you know, and, and so just going back on everything you're sharing, I think that some, some big takeaways for me, um, are one, this reinforces a lot of what I tell my patients, but, you know, I think that what you're talking about also with, you know, the increased breathing and the chest breathing and the faster pace and how you're in more of an agitated state and that sends you into fight or flight. And I know I have a lot of patients who have a hard time falling asleep. And then once they're asleep, yes. they have a hard time staying asleep. And these are yeah. adults and kids. So, you know, I think this speaks to both, um, both demographics, which is, um, which is awesome. And my biggest question is because I'm not somebody who's done the, um, the taping and I know that yes. some people are fearful of it. So, you know, what do you rule out before you recommend taping, especially in a child? Are you making sure that we don't have sure. it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Good question. Yeah, so it's coming back. So when I have the kids then in the clinic, uh, we have them tape up early, very, very early on. 
And the reason being is because I do want to establish like why is the child breathing through the, no through the mouth and can they effectively breathe through the nose? Mm -hmm. So I have them do all of the exercises and then I have them run with their mouth closed. I have them walk with their mouth closed and then I'd have them do the steps. I monitor their steps as a measurement, but also as the main exercise for kids. So with children, we don't use the control pause because it doesn't work. Children generally have a strong ventilatory response to carbon dioxide, meaning that their breath hold time, if they just hold their nose, is generally lower. Mm -hmm. And this decreases as the child gets older. But we use an exercise called the steps exercise. And we want the child to try and achieve about 50 to 60 paces, depending on their age. Um, so when I can get the child up, if, say, the child is able to run with their mouth closed fairly comfortably, and also as their steps increase to, say, 30, 40 paces, then I know that the child can adequately breathe through their nose. But we first start off with taping during the day. And I introduced taping during the day about two to three years ago because I used to get frustrated working with kids. Um, I'd spend an hour going through all of the exercises with the child, and the child then walks in a week later, and the mouth is hanging open. And okay, we'll go through all the exercise and why do you breathe through your nose? And I knew the children were able to breathe through their nose, many of these kids. So anatomically, they didn't necessarily have much of an issue because they were like, we don't have to have the most perfect nose to breathe through it. I don't, you know, and 60% of the adult population have a deviated septum. But we have a rule of thumb. If you can breathe through your nose for one minute, you can do it for life. So even when the children first switch to nasal breathing, if they're feeling a little bit of air hunger, I'm not worried about that because I can alleviate that with doing the breathing exercises. Okay. So when they go home, we have the kids, especially when they are distracted, they have to wear tape on their lips because I need to change the habit. So it was coming back to this. It was the biggest game changer that we introduced because before that, I'd have kids coming in a week later, the mouth was open, go through everything again. A week later, they'd come in, the mouth were open go through everything again. A week later, they come in with mouth open. And they can, they can absolutely breathe through their nose, but I hadn't changed the habit. So to change the habit, the child then breathes through the nose wearing tape for at least a half an hour in the first week every day. When they are distracted, when they are doing homework, when they're playing with toys, if they're on mom or dad's iPhone or whatever they're doing, they wear the tape. Now, at night time, we were trying different ways of getting the child's mouth closed. We had tape coming up under the chin. We had tape surrounding the lips. And, you know, none of it was really working. The only way that was working was if you completely placed the tape across the child's mouth. Now, obviously, that presents a risk. And it's not code of practice for healthcare professionals. And unfortunately, a couple of our instructors um, did get into trouble because they had recommended taping of the mouth across the lips. And as a result, then the patients reported them to the, the relevant boards mm -hmm. and they had to answer to the boards. So we were saying, well, how can we resolve this? It's vital that we get kids breathing through the nose. If you look at Karen Bonnock's study, if you look at the available evidence there, that children who are persistently mouth breathing leading to sleep disorder breathing they have a 40% increased risk of special education needs. So you're trying to weigh it up, nasal breathing versus the risk. Yeah. So I then come up with this, and I've seen somebody using it as well. 
in terms of using kinesio tape. So in our older videos, we were using kinesio tape, but we were putting it around the lips. And then it's having a tape like this, mm -hmm. and it's kinesio tape, it's cotton, and it's hypo hypoallergenic. And there's one for adults and one for kids, and you simply stretch it by about 20 to 30%. You place it around the mouth, Okay, there is a tension now that this is bringing my lips together, but I can talk. Now, before we were using during the day for the kids, we were getting them to use 3 on micropore tape, but they'd wear the tape for a half an hour, but they couldn't talk for a half an hour, or they'd wear a tape for an hour and they couldn't talk for an hour. Now, the thing about this is that it's if a child is wearing myotape, if they forget about breathing through their nose and if they open their mouth, the tape automatically reminds them to bring the lips together. So we now have them wear it during the day and we also have them wear it during sleep. There's no risk associated with during sleep because the tension is light, but at the same time, once you stretch it, the tension is sufficient to bring the lips together. So, I would say that once you can establish that the child can breathe through the nose during wakefulness, I would be very comfortable that the child can breathe through their nose during sleep. But start off having the child, because the one thing about the human nose is the more we use it, the better it works. We see it all the time. You know, my own nose was really chronically um, congested for many, many years. And once you start using it, the two things that open up the nose are, physical exercise which are mouth closed, and breath holding. Since 1923, it has been recognized that if you stop breathing, if you hold your breath, you can open up your nose. Now, we, this works for both adults and for kids. So for children to help open up the nose, we have them taped up, and then we have them breathe in through the nose, breathe out through the nose, hold the nose, and gently nod their head up and down, holding their breath for as long as they can. And they, can keep, they continue to do that until they develop a strong air hunger and then to let go and to breathe in through the nose. Or the kids can take a normal breath in and out through the nose, hold their nose, and they can walk around, walk holding their breath, then let go and breathe in through the nose. How does it work? I'm not sure if anybody knows. The precise mechanism is not known. There are some papers showing that when you hold your breath, you stop breathing. Carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood. And it may be the buildup of CO2 that's helping to decongest the nose. So we have the kids breathe through their nose, de sorry, decongest their nose first of all, then establish nasal breathing during wakefulness, sleep, and physical exercise. And then as their breathing patterns improve, their nasal congestion decreases. Mm. And once with the measurement of the steps, if a child is achieving about 50 steps onwards, they will have a remarkable improvement or reduction to their nasal congestion. That makes a lot of sense. And I really like the visual that you showed us with the myotape um, because I feel like, you know, if a child absolutely needed to open their mouth and take yes. a breath of air, it's not restricting that in the same way that taping across the mouth might not. Yes. Although I understand also the tape usually would pop off if, you know, the mouth forced it to. Yeah. Um, like we, we were using the tape across the lips at night, but you know, always at the back of my head, I was saying, oh, okay, it's not ideal. And you're trying to weigh it up. Um, so that's, that's what we, 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 you know, in terms of addressing that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think, um, you know, obviously this is something that myofunctional therapists are assessing, feeding therapists. I work with a lot of speech pathologists and occupational therapists who do pediatric feeding. And, you know, we're always looking at the airway. Does the airway yes. compromise because we can't have safe feeding without it? So I think this is something that would be universally helpful for, for those that listen yes. to this podcast. Yes. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these MyoTots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.